You're listening to Trustees Without Borders. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Today, my guest is Francesco Manca, independent political analyst, former deputy director for the Political and Civil Affairs Office of UNIFIL, the United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon. Joining me for our conversation with Francesco are Max Stevenson, professor, director of the Institute for Policy and Governance here at Virginia Tech, Laura Zanotti, associate professor, Department of Political Science, Dalia Chandler, who's a member of the Community Voices team, Lorian McCauley, a Ph.D. student in the Agricultural Leadership and Community Education Program here at Tech. Welcome, Francesco, to Trustees Without Borders. Thank you very much, Andy. It's great to have you here. And uh, I'd, I'd like to start uh, our conversation. This is your second visit to Virginia Tech, and you've been retired from the U.N. for about a year. And I'm interested in what your process has been going from highly engaged, involved in global uh, issues in hot spots around the world doing peacekeeping, and now you're retired. And what has that retirement process been like for you? It's been uh, a pleasant one. I would say I had opportunity to go back uh, home. I mean, to start with, to have uh, an effort in order to focus where home was for me. Uh, last year, I celebrated Christmas with my mother, and we were 40 years uh, since last time we did. So it was a good uh, occasion of seeing friends, uh, family, uh, things that you, that you left behind, anything that you will find. And you realize that time, pass, time passes and, uh, and you, you need to go back if you want really to nourish and, uh, and find those uh, friendly faces. Yeah. And it's a bit the, the feeling here as well. It's nice to be back in Virginia Tech. It's nice to be back in Blacksburg. I was here last year. Uh, I would say one year after I start putting order in my thoughts. Last year I was just uh, coming, visiting, lecturing. Uh, this time I was able to, to contribute with Professor Zanotti to certain classes. Uh, so my contribution even to the, to the student has been a little bit more organized and, uh, and focused on my experience. So probably last year I would say has been spent to put some order in my thoughts, my memories, my pictures. And uh, and try to convert that rather than in a, in a sort of retiree laid back life right. into something that could be used uh, at least as a lessons learned. Yeah, thank you. Now let me turn uh, to Max, Laura, Lorian, and Delia to uh, join our conversation. Let me start with you, Lorian. Thank you. Yes, Lorian McCauley here, PhD student in agricultural leadership and community education at Virginia Tech, and um, really happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just had a question. We have a lot of students here at Virginia Tech who are very idealistic, very passionate, want to get into this kind of work. And um, I just sort of wondered, you know, it's, it's so motivational to me to hear someone who's had such a long career full of so many different twists and turns and sort of the kernel of passion that really led you to get into this work and then kept you going when things got really rough. And just wondering what really... Um, what was really motivational and kept you going during that time? There were several moments in which in my life I, I was choosing on the basis of emotional uh, motivation. And I would, I would even say that I was lucky enough that most of my professional choices had been determined by that. Uh, sometime even against the uh, advisors <laughs> that were <laughs> trying to convey to me uh, the sort of wisdom 
that should lead uh, you to take uh, decisions that are good for your uh, life and not for your passions. Uh, I'm from Genoa, and for us it was not so natural, let's say, to, to choose a different city to live. It's a nice city in northern Italy. Um, my background was initially political science. That was where my passion was. But uh, I also was lucky, and after my political science degree, I had a scholarship for an MBA. So I moved my, let's say, interest to something which was more business-like. And, uh, and sure enough, after the MBA, I got a tremendous offer from Procter and Gamble, and I had four years in uh, multinationals, which were very rewarding and very, in a, in a very sharp learning curve. So I, I'm very thankful for the experience I had in those years. Still, I had uh, a passion for the international community, for uh, the UN, for works were not, I would say, profit-oriented. Let's put it in that way, in a vast sense. And, uh, and that passion was uh, fed also by a friend of mine who happened to had uh, a job with the United Nations, it was a temporary job as a consultant for, uh, for a project. And he used to pass by Rome, and he was looking for his next step. So I thought that uh, that world could have been of great interest. He was uh, reluctant. He thought that what I had was so glamorous that uh, was not really justifying a jump into a sort of more bureaucratic UN job. Uh, but I asked him, what are the options? Let me see. And, uh, and we started looking together at vacancies. So I was selected for a vacancy I applied to, which was uh, in New York at the Center on Transnational Corporations. And I had uh, a job for a couple of years in the advance advisory branch of the center, uh, dealing with uh, joint ventures and training of officers in developing countries on how to attract foreign investment and at the same time how to establish joint ventures and relationship with big giant corporations. Uh, after two years, I start thinking that my friend was right, that an experience was good, but emotionally probably was more challenging to go back to the private sector and, uh, and to have the dynamism that I had experienced in Procter & Gamble. However, my supervisor at that time convinced me that there was a, what they were calling a golden opportunity, really, where you fit very well. And, uh, and I accepted it with enthusiasm because it was... Uh, the preparation of a, a workshop, a seminar in China for uh, 50, 60 students, uh, which were actually officers of the Ministry of Foreign Investment and Trades. And, uh, and I thought it was thrilling to be in China in the late 80s. And, uh, and, I, and I went for three months, that was the length of the, of the seminar, uh, as a project manager. I've been in charge of coordinating the the faculty basically you know we had uh, professors and uh, and experts coming from all over the world what i didn't know at that time was that uh, the experience ended up with Tiananmen and uh, in the spring uh, 1989 i was uh, caught in the middle of the turmoil over there and evacuated from china back in new york i had a phone call by an, a voice that i Recognized it was the guy who was calling me every night, two or three o'clock in the morning from New York, and uh, a bit apologetic, say sorry, I woke you up so many times asking about the situation over there, 
but uh, we should have a coffee together. And we had a coffee at the secretariat that from the agencies I was working in was a sort of the the place where the real politics goes on. So it was rewarding to go there to the cafeteria. I realized later on that that coffee was an interview. And, uh, and he asked me if I had any political background or a military background. And I said, yes, I served uh, in the military in Italy. It was compulsory at that time. And, uh, and I serve as an officer. I said, do you speak Spanish? It's very similar to Italian. I said, yes, similar to Italian plus I had project in Venezuela, I have project with the Indian Pact. So I understand Spanish, I can be understood, but uh, don't ask me to write it, I probably will be f- plenty of mistakes. I said, no, 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 for what, what I have in mind is, doesn't matter. I said, what do you have in mind? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, we need observers for uh, monitoring the electoral process in Nicaragua. And with your background, uh, I think you are an ideal candidate. Who would you be interested in coming with us? Uh, I said, for how long? I said, about three, four months. And uh, and then you come back to New York, and then you will see. I said, you know, but I really wanted to go back to the private sector in any case. Okay, winter in New York is miserable. Let me go to the Caribbean. Uh, wrong assumption was not so lovely and uh, Caribbean as I thought, but was extremely interesting. I left for three, four months, and I came back five years later. Meanwhile, we were involved... Uh, in the elections in Nicaragua, in the transition of power, in the, the mobilization of the Contras, repatriation of the Contras family, the process uh, in El Salvador, the, uh, the peace accord in El Salvador, the, the mobilization of the FMLN, the uh, elections in El Salvador, and even after that, the elections in uh, Mexico in 1994. At that time, a lot of things had changed already, and uh, the Department of Peacekeeping Operations had been created. So the people I was uh, in contact with, they asked me, so are you still convinced that you want back to the private sector, or would you be interested in a job in New York at this newly created department? And I, again, I left my heart somehow decide for me, and I thought it was uh, a good uh, opportunity to keep... Uh, living and working with a sort of uh, positive adrenaline uh, in what I thought uh, was reconciling, reconciling very well my professional skills and my personal beliefs. Great, thank you. This is Delia Chandler with Community Voices. Um, I was hoping that you could um, explain this idea of an observer, um, what it entails, and then also after your year of reflexivity, what power did this role have in affecting lasting change in these areas? I will try to answer to this question from two different perspectives. Uh, a positive one, which means that uh, you know the participation of... Uh, the international community to electoral processes contributed dramatically to the credibility of these processes and to the legitimacy of the elected governments, which in return provided a lot of stability in areas that were, uh, if not after conflict, but certainly uh, sort of dance of tension. I think of the role of the UN uh, in, in Nicaragua was the first uh, g- sovereign state that was asking the UN to participate in an electoral process. But I was thinking also of uh, 
Cambodia, Mozambique, Haiti, uh, South Africa. So really elections that represented a change. But I also want to be a little bit critical about the enthusiasm that sometimes you have uh, on what people like to call uh, the election of the century. I mean, it's a good title for uh, a newspaper, and we have seen it over and over again. I do not believe that democracy is reduced to one-day elections and announcement of results. I like to look at the elections of uh, family elections. I like to see a process that uh, continue over and over again. And, uh, and I like to think <clears throat> at the next elections, as some, some election that could be better than this one, where the electoral community might not be necessary to be involved. Uh, and, and I like to come back to the countries where I've been monitoring elections, but I would like to be there with a more relaxed approach, maybe as a guest of all friends. Uh, I find, for instance, rewarding from an electoral assistance point of view, the fact that in countries such as Nicaragua, you know, where we monitor elections that uh, uh, brought to power Violeta de Chamorro, the leader of the opposition, and after years we had Daniel Ortega back. I mean, you know, as a, not because one is better than the other or vice versa, but because the principle of possibility of people of choosing, determining the self-determination through elections, I think is a, is a base for democracy. Similarly, in El Salvador, you know, Calderon Sol was the first one elected with our electoral observation. Today, the president is a guerrilla leader that uh, was uh, wanted at the time in which we were there for the peace process. So I think that the electoral processes are part of the peace-building peace process, but requires time and I think a key for success is the sustainability of the process. Ultimately, elections and electoral processes are an element of self-determination that should count on the resources of the country involved. Mm -hmm. uh, the foreign presence is nice, but uh, could be criticized as intrusive. Occasionally is. Uh, so we, we need to find the right balance where the perception of, uh, of the people, of the citizen, is that the process is fair and the result is uh, representing the will of the population. Thank you, Francesco. Um, if I will, um, I actually was very interested to continue a conversation we started on our October 14th podcast uh, with Community Voices. Um, I know that... Um, the process sort of is only just starting when we have a fair and free election, the process of, of stabilizing a country. And last time we, we addressed the sort of DDR process, the disarmament, demobilization and reinsertion of um, sort of creating this, this, this military force and sort of uh, harmonizing, getting everybody back in society. And um, we had talked about the, the role of the civil sector in that process. And, um, as I recall, you said that there's a uh, large role that the civil sector can play. I would like to problematize that a little bit because I know we do um, sometimes, um, especially in our community voices conversation, we talked about we, we talk about how the, the civil sector is still dependent on um, sort of, you know, it's 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 dependent on charity, really, you know, when it comes down to it, it, it depends on goodwill of 
typically um, wealthy nations to lower income nations. And so, you know, with that sort of tenuous connection in mind, you know, but yet it can work, yet it can work. Okay, so but, but with that sort of tenuous connection in mind, I was curious to know your thoughts on that whole problem, problematique, if you will, of, um, of the fact that the civil sector is still supplied by sort of a, you know, a goodwill funding source. Well, as I promised, I'm going to hit back right away. Uh, I don't think that the elections are the starting point. I think that the elections are already a, an indicator of a process that is consolidating. I think that uh, elections, particularly when the, the international community is involved from long time, are an indicator that certain elements have been already achieved particularly the lack of fear. Uh, we were discussing, and I think that the major obstacle in post-conflict scenarios is that the fact that people live still with a lot of fear. And when people live with a lot of fear in poverty, uh, often you have that sort of cynical comments that say either one or the other might seem the same. So participation is even an indicator that we not only succeeded in getting rid of a fear that was there for decades, but also that we are transmitting hope that by a participation, your voice can be heard somewhere. A dramatic example of that is in Sierra Leone. Uh, you probably recall that uh, one of the characteristics of the Sierra Leone Civil War was those uh, uh, individuals you know, whose arms were chopped uh, you know the reasons behind that. The previous electoral campaign was launched by the government saying, your future is in your hands. And, uh, and the rebels would say, left one or right one? And they were chopping accordingly, giving you the choice of the hand or the half of your arm. So you see how powerful you know, the old message can be and how fear can, can be really an hampering factor in any political participation, probably the most one. Uh, so you, you, you challenge fear, you challenge poverty, and, and to have a good turnout in a situation or in a population you used to have fear and you used to live in poverty is, uh, is already an achievement. As I said, is not uh, enough to have one election, particularly if those elections are glamorous and have support and money from the international community. The international community wants to have a success, uh, unfortunately, and now as a rhetoric, I mean, you know, one of the enthusiasm I have is that I, I can speak by far with a more provocative tone. Uh, and sometimes the, the international community is satisfied because it's not listening anymore to those symptoms of the problem that lead people to cry or to scream. So if they are satisfied and they don't listen to scream, who cares about the next election? Uh, I think, and this is where the, you know, the community voice is important, I think that that is something where the community needs to be heard and to convey the, the voices and the screams and bring back uh, conditions in order to have, uh, again, uh, a, a fair access to those instruments that the state should provide you for fair elections.
Great. Um, I have a question about these, uh, the disarmament, destabilization, and reinstatement. Um, it sounds like it's almost reinforcing this military mentality. Um, and to go off what Lorian was saying about the civil society then being this place for free and fair elections, or to have a stable civil society would then generate the environment for free and fair elections. What was the UN's role to ensure that the civil society had space to grow and um, to, to cultivate this kind of normative change that's going to have to happen after a country has been, you know, either engaged in civil war for many years, brutal, um, uh, a brutal vo war that includes um, a different mentality if you're within a regime or if you have been, um, you know, raped, you haven't been uh, educated for years in, in an actual structure. You know, what, what did you find the UN effectively doing to then cultivate a civil society? I can see two sources of legitimacy in a way. The first part, what you were referring to in the, in the disarmament and demobilization process, where the, the origin of the action of the operation is uh, somewhere else, in a way. Uh, so in a military way, as you said, you, know, you give orders and then you, you structure the, the operation in such a way as we did in Nicaragua, where the Venezuelan battalion of Onuka was uh, receiving the weapons, cutting the weapons. And then, you know, the, the disarmament at that point is completed and you need to go into demobilization. And demobilization is that aspect that in a way bridges really from the absence of weapons, which is an euphemism because, you know, weapons are in the market. The moment you have money, you buy new ones. But uh, really in the breaking of uh, structures that could be reactivated right away according hostile uh, intention. So a recurrence of the use of force. In order to be successful in that process of demobilization, then you need uh, to create a synergy to something that is not externally generated, but is there. And this is where the local communities play a role. So to a certain extent, I'm even skeptical about uh, local communities that are fed by external support. You have to be very care careful not to create uh, a sort of vicious entity that is uh, dependent on foreign support. Mm -hmm. So you need uh, something that is generated there and it just doesn't work that if it's not there, you create it. You know, it, it really, the indicator that time is mature for that synergy is when the soil of that country is generating its own participants, its own actors. Uh, then, as an international entity, you can make a political decision that is, is worth it support and is, is uh, instrumental for the consolidation of the peace process reaching another level. In, the, in Nicaragua, that was this operation of disarmament. In El Salvador, it was interesting because for the, for the Nicaraguan, you know, it was obvious that the 
the situation has changed. The leader of the opposition had been elected uh, president. So, yes, we can disarm. We don't have any more a justification to fight. But in El Salvador, that didn't occur yet. So the, the mobilization was a more difficult process. And as part of the, the mobilization, there was the need of a reform of the state and where a more complex negotiations. On the basis of the experience had with the Contras, uh, the president Cristiani was openly saying, okay, no, let's demobilize now also the FMLN. The FMLN said, no, we want to have, yes, we accept the demobilization, but within a, a complete uh, peace process that uh, has uh, several reform, including the reform of the armed forces. Uh, significantly, what they negotiated was not to be disarmed by a UN uh, troops, but to disarm themselves and then offer what they have destroyed to the UN, just as observers. Smooth difference, but brings you, again, the element on how peace building is, is created. You know, symbolism is very important as well. But then we go to the third experience of Central America at that time, chronological, uh, which was Mexico. So Mexico didn't have any uh, peacekeeping operation. And Mexico was not challenged in terms of democracy. But still, at the beginning of 94, Mexico was facing the this assassination of Colosio, the candidate of the ruling party, uh, was uh, facing the, uh, the group and uh, the, you know, the, the movements in Chiapas. So they felt that the international community could help. But how could the international community help without challenging the sovereignty of Mexico and the democratic uh, history of the country? So the role was uh, to contribute to have local NGOs involved in electoral observations in having a more qualified role in the electoral process. And a group of us, which was coming from the process in Salvador and uh, in El Salvador and in Nicaragua, went to Mexico, uh, basically advising the NGOs and coordinating their participation in the electoral process. It was a very creative way of working with local communities without uh, interfering with the sovereignty of the state or even with the electoral process itself, but just reinforcing the rules of the games and the transparency that ultimately were strengthening the whole electoral process. I think one of the, uh, of the challenges really to come every time with uh, a creative solution that is tailoring better you know, the needs of the process that we are facing and is offering solution to which the parties are not yet uh, pre-positioned in order to play a better game. You need to surprise them. This is uh, Laura Zanotti. Uh, Francesco, <coughs> uh, I would like to, to ask you a question that has to do with my somewhat less optimistic view of the role of civil society. Um, my time at the United Nations, I was, in, in, as you know, in Haiti and in Croatia. And in there, especially in Haiti, I've seen 
a progressive NGOization of the country that didn't contribute to that process of state building we as the United Nations we wanted to bring about um, in the Balkans in you know and working in there recently more recently uh, also with Max um, we realized that sometimes civil society is so fossilized within war identities and discourses that um, interject in interfering with externally funded NGOs that may be the beacon of good principles ends up polarizing even further the society between insider and outsider or between you know the ones who are perceived as uh, sponsored by external forces so I wonder how how this could be negotiated by the international community. You, you, you told us some success stories, but sometimes the situation is so difficult, like in Haiti economically and, and in, in the Balkans in terms of polarization, that I'm not sure if, if one can, can have such a positive outcome in, in those. And I wonder how one could be creative in those situations. No, it's, yeah, I think I've been less optimistic when I was mentioning in my answer before, that uh, to a certain extent, when you talk of a successful uh, civil society contribution, you need something that is generated in the country. And uh, and how I also experience, uh, you know, I had experiences in which uh, the, this contribution was vicious because was uh, dependent completely from uh, from foreign aid and was creating a job. Uh, that was that had lost, yeah. in a way, the uh, the enthusiasm and and the moral justification that is at the origin of that sort of contribution. Uh, so I I think that uh, you know sometime could even be used as a way of uh, bypassing the criticism that nothing is done to find a solution. And uh, and in a way, in a bad connotation of uh, charity, you say, but you know, we, we are providing these uh, activists with funds and uh, tools in order to be active. So this is a good step in the right direction. It's not uh, as clear and as uh, effective as that. You might have sympathy for those causes, but I think that uh, certain situation or certain institution or events that uh, are blocking certain processes cannot just be uh, taken away with goodwill and with a, a patronizing approach. So you need really go back to the word I used before to create a synergy vis-a-vis -vis the vision and the energy that are produced locally and some help that you can provide can provide as an international community. But this is is really the uh, in a way the difference between an external created operation to address a destabilizing process and a locally create movement that is consolidating a process that has been already achieved, certain steps, such as the cessation of hostility, the access to an electoral process, uh, the reestablishment of certain conditions for development. Then the local community could play a role as 
accelerator, consolidator. But uh, I do not believe that uh, external actor could create from scratch uh, a, a kind of condition. Otherwise, we are really uh, reaching a sort of the stream definition of cultural uh, colonialism, where you are imposing this is the way you have to do. And, and you might have a reaction of people getting very excited about that because it's the way to get salaries and jobs. Uh, so, you know, is a... Uh, uh, is something that in these kind of countries uh, and situations, I'm not even labeling the countries, I was saying, in these kind of conflicts and situations, you have to be very careful to deal with. Francesco, this is Max Stevenson. I'm struck on the last comment that you find yourself in a position, perhaps, uh, as an international community strategically, of awaiting the potential of the local community to itself respond. The difficulty to which Laura pointed, I think, in the Balkans, for example, is what if it, they don't? Or if in Haiti, what if there are a whole set of conditions that make it unlikely, if not inauspicious, if not unlikely, that they will respond? Um, and what should or, or can the international community do in those conditions? Agreeing with your proposition that we need to be humble about when and if and how we respond and create synergies presuming that the community itself is doing so, doing something, but what if it itself cannot be, is not being successful in moving forward? Well, that's an indicator of fragility of, of the situation. So the likelihood for that situation to go backward and, uh, and restart the old conflict over and over again is very high. Uh, I'm also very skeptical when this sort of support is given outside a, an international vision and international legitimacy. Um, very often is so partial that uh, uh, it becomes uh, fueling you know, the diversities and polarizing the situation on the ground. Uh, I mean, I, I bring up one of these examples, and, and again, this is with the luxurious status of retiree, and addressing an issue that is shooting back home. So, I mean, so it's, I, I feel comfortable to bring it up. Somehow, at a certain point in southern Lebanon, uh, we were inviting, invited, without knowing the background, to, to a celebration for the inauguration of, uh, of the statue of a saint in the middle of a village as contribution of the international community, or at least a contribution of a group that was donating this statue uh, to the village. I mean, nothing against the, the statue because I have a Catholic background, I mean, so it's, that's not the issue. The issue is in a, in a so polarized society where Sunni, Shia, and Christian are fighting each other, where is the opportunity for building a saint statue in the middle of a village? I mean, why do you want to label that village as Christian to make the other look at it as uh, something completely different from uh, your identity and your sense of belonging? I think politically that that was not a smart move. But you talk with the people and it's done with the best intention and, uh, uh, and it's probably triggering a reaction 
that doesn't go in the direction those who are promoting the operation were aiming at. Uh, so you have this statue of Padre Pio in the middle of a Shia uh, area uh, just because there is a strong Christian community over there. Again, you know, nothing wrong per se, and probably you think of it as, a, as something positive, contribution to a group, but it's contributing to polarize further the, the society over there. Uh, and we have this naivety over and over again. I still remember, you know, again in Central America, at a certain point we had a, a visit from representative of the Congress, and we were in the middle of the repatriation of the Contras family. One of the issues we were having in the middle of conflict area, far away from everything, with fear still, with because there were a lot of bandits and poverty and so on, and post, uh, uh, let's say, with rehabilitation, uh, what do you say, not rehabilitation, the mobilization and disarmament was not still 100%. And I still remember to talk about with, with this representative and, and expressing that one of our concern was that we were dealing with a lot of cash because we had this repatriation. And I still remember the naivety in which the answer was, why don't you give them checks? And, uh, and, and we were like, hello, you know, we, you know, have you seen, have you had a time to look around where we are? Uh, but often, you know, we have this, I can call it anthropologically, I mean, it doesn't have more the political connotation, but an anthropological colonial approach to problems where we think that our solutions are good everywhere. Francesco, I think this is a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Yes, um, this, is, this is great. Um, I would like to a little bit change the subject to some sort of, you know, current events. Um, so, Syria. Um, and going back again to the October 14th podcast, um, which so, it was so fascinating that you brought up right at the end, um, Alvaro de Soto and he, how, or Alvaro de Soto, my pardon, pardon me for the pronunciation, but um, he was, for our listeners, he retired in 2007, uh, a former UN Mideast envoy, and apparently his top secret end of mission report was leaked to the press. And um, in his end of mission report, I remember you saying that he um, had sort of said that in the, the situation with Syria was sort of starting to get pretty bad, and he was sort of starting to get the idea that, that, that um, we weren't necessarily trying to promote peace, as, as doing everything we possibly could to promote peace in the area. So um, sort of wanted to, you to elaborate on that. What are the implications? What is the... In, with with that sort of as a backdrop, um, it, uh, what are what are sort of the implications there for the situation in Syria now, and what do you think? Like, what what could be our way forward through that? Uh, I, I was making reference to the end of two report of Alvaro de Soto, which was the uh, the representative of the Secretary General in the peace process in the Middle East, and uh, and how he was uh, complaining in his report that, as you mentioned, is now public, although as a confidential label on, the, on his first page, and probably in all the pages of the report, that uh, he was not allowed to go to Syria. Uh, and I don't know exactly when and how, but I was bringing it up as, a, as an example, because I think that for the Middle East, uh, 
probably. Uh, the only solution is the comprehensive justice peace uh, for the whole region. I mean, you know, the, this idea that, uh, that Syria is so far away from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict of, of war the, from the, the difficulties uh, process that Egypt is going through or from the instability of Lebanon, I, I think is, uh, is not the right one. I think that the whole Middle East is uh, closer to each other uh, much more than, uh, than we look at it. I think that, uh, that the Syrian crisis, that is certainly Syrian, but it's not, just not only Syrian, and, uh, and started uh, well before the, what is defined as the Arab Spring. So I think that the international community should, uh, should look at it uh, in this uh, sort of general, um, general picture, avoiding or trying to mitigate a strong criticism that is uh, provided to the international community in general and to the UN in particular as expression of this international will of double standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have been criticizing Hezbollah in Lebanon for many years, saying that no matter what, the, the, the presence of uh, a sort of irregular force, uh, so formidable, so strong, was uh, a threat to the stability of the region. And uh, what was reinforced was that irregular forces should not be actors in a peace process or should not be the one we sponsor in order to find a solution through a conflict. Uh, I have the impression, or I had the impression, that uh, what we did with the forces fighting Assad was uh, not coherent with this principle we were trying to assert in the case of Lebanon. Uh, So this sort of continuously shifting from one principle to the other has uh, diminish dramatically the credibility uh, of uh, international presence in the Middle East and challenge even the presence of the United Nations, uh, despite a very top-heavy presence where you have uh, more undersecretary generals in the, in the Middle East than everywhere else in the world. Right. Yeah, thank you. And um, with that in mind, just, uh, you know, I just wanted to ask you just a general question after all your years and travels through the UN. Do you have any sort of um, overarching principles that the UN should be following in addressing just the the conflict? I, I view it as the central conflict between Israel and Palestine, but just the Middle East in general. Um, do you have any just words of wisdom to share that you, you believe that the UN might follow? Well, you see, the, the, the UN, and I'm quoting Golden books on it, Peacemonger, uh, there is a very different opinion of the UN. Uh, if you're talking of UN successes, member states proudly claim that they are the UN. When you are talking of something to blame, uh, then the finger is pointed to the Secretariat and to the Secretary General. So I think that the responsibility in this case is really member states and international community responsibility that they should use the UN in a better way. I I think that the Charter of the United Nations is a marvelous document, 
and uh, uh, if any of my criticism for within are perceived as anti-UN, let me make it clear that I believe that the UN should be stronger than what is now. But stronger means also that it should be more credible towards its charter and towards its members, not only the member states, but also the people. And, uh, and the charter, for instance, is uh, somehow projecting an international organization where member states are treated with the same dignity, uh, where international civil servant working for the United Nations has uh, only one level of responsibility that is towards the organization and not towards the capitals that are appointing them in a senior position or lobbying to have them appointed in those positions. I think in this sense the, the, the knowledge and the adherence to the charter is probably my best recommendation and my still enthusiasm towards the organization in the UN. So Francesco, what follows from that is an in-principle claim that the states themselves would behave differently, would provide support, would provide resources, and so on. If we take as it's it, the, the way the UN is now configured, or are you assuming there would be changes in the configuration of the institution as well? There might be changes in the configuration of the institution, but still, you know, the key element is the political will. So often resources are used as an obstacle to operation, and certainly are, but the major obstacle to, the, the, to any operation, particularly when we are talking of peace process, is the lack of a common vision, the lack of consensus, uh, the lack of uh, uh, uniformity in perceiving what is needed to be done, and the political backing to the, an operation that has been approved initially, but is my facing something that has changed in the course of the evolution of the situation on the ground. So I think that the political will remains the challenge of the international community in order to have uh, a more effective and efficient UN. Uh, often the inefficiency of certain UN operations or certain offices have a strong political root. Francesco Manca, thank you for being a guest again on Trustees Without Borders, and we wish you well. Thank you. I'm uh, happy there is life after retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Max, Laura Zanotti, Delia Chandler, and Lorian McCauley, thank you for your good help in making possible this engaging conversation with Francesco Manca. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on Trustees Without Borders. I'm your host, Andy Morikawa. Looking forward to seeing you next time.